0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to discuss the transformative power of imagination, how imagining a different world can help us actually build one, how the process of political and social imagination can look like, how it can be encouraged and why we're currently going through a major crisis of political imagination. And I'm very happy to welcome Jeff Mulgan to the podcast. He's Professor of Collective Intelligence, Public Policy and Social Innovation at the University College of London. But he's had a very long and distinguished career, including senior roles in civil society, running various different organizations such as Nestor and the Young Foundation at their highest peaks of, of government, working as head of the Prime Minister's Policy Unit and the Strategy Unit as well as working in technology, in academia. And in another life, he was my boss when he was director of the Demos think tank. And I was a very humble researcher just out of university. So it's a a huge pleasure to talk to Jeff today. He's author of a brand new book called Another World is Possible, How to Reignite Social and Political Imagination. Jeff, thanks a lot for joining. Great to be with you. So I want to talk about the, the crisis of imagination, the history of utopias, and then to, to go into some of these more practical ideas that you have about how we can get out of the situation we're in at the moment. But maybe we can just start with that crisis. It's difficult to discuss the whole book in 30 minutes, but the core cool issue you start with is this sense that we are in a hole because we can't actually imagine our way out of it. Can you Define what the, the crisis of political and, and, and social imagination is.
1: Uh, I'll try. So, so my, my career, as you said, has been a slightly odd mixture of working often top down with governments, including many across Europe and the European Commission, sort of bottom up from new either startups in the business world or social ventures, all of which is about how do you make ideas real. And about two or three years ago, uh, the the book was prompted by conversations I had with activists involved in the Friday school strikes, which began in Sweden and then spread to Germany and all over the world. And I was very struck talking to those activists, how deeply pessimistic they were about the world, about the climate crisis and so on, but also how there was lost much sense that you could aspire to a better world, a better welfare system, better health, better economy, better cities. And I went around then asking lots of highly educated people, uh, you know, what their picture was of a better society, a generation or now in the future. And I found people didn't struggle at all to describe dystopias and ecological disasters or for that matter, technology opportunities, AI, robots and so on. But they really struggled to describe, yeah, what a welfare state might look like or democracy, all these things uh, in ways which were plausible and desirable a generation from now. And that's what convinced me. We have a bit of a crisis of imagination compared to periods of the past. We don't have the options uh, available. And in part, I then tried to analyze why is this the case? And part of the reason, I think, comes from politics. Political parties at various points in the past invested very heavily in thinking 20, 40, 50 years into the future. Very few do that now. I blame universities, and I'm in one now. Uh, For many reasons, it's become very difficult for experts in different fields to work on design and options for the future, at least in social sciences or economics and so on. Whereas if you're working in computer science or life sciences, it's sort of natural that that's what you do. And all of this, I think, has fueled a kind of pessimism. And the other prompt, I guess, for the book was a a survey done by Pew um, before the pandemic asking people across the world, including, I think, pretty much every European country, whether they thought their children would be better off than them. And large majorities in almost every country, Poland was an exception, you know, expected their children's lives to be worse than their own lives. And this, this pervasive pessimism and fatalism, I think, is really dangerous for our, our world, and actually in some ways unrealistic, because we do potentially have many more options to shape our societies, our economies in a in a good direction.
0: So there's no doubt that the, the kind of leitmotif of of politics in many places been about recreating a better past rather than having visions of a of a different future. Maybe before we kind of go into your history of utopias and, and, and think about how people have been able to to have both kind of very complete and incomplete ideas of the future, but we could go a bit deeper into why this is because it's it is very striking how little faith people have, both in that poll that you mentioned. There's another poll I saw which was very interesting, where they asked people a question about change uh, won't be good for people like me. And like two thirds of people agreed with that proposition, which is creates a sort of fundamental challenge for, for progressive political movements. Um, in fact, the idea of progress. It is going through a, a crisis the whole idea of kind of modernity people are kind of writing about how how that is um, is challenged by by what's happening in the world and it's not because we've had a sort of it 's not like 1945 where you 've just been through the Holocaust or something like that, which obviously created big doubts people about the enlightenment and and the idea of, of of history simply getting better in fact you know on a lot of indicators the world is is far richer, far more equal, far better in 2022 than it was 20 years ago, or 20 years before that. So why do you think people are defying their, their own recent experiences? So I think there are contextual reasons and also sort of deeper ones. And there's a bit of blame, I
1: suggest in the book. So I think since the financial crisis of 2007-8, a lot of People's lives have been stagnant. Incomes essentially stopped going up in, in in large parts of the world, and that then fueled, you know, a political populist reaction that's been layered on with the climate crisis and now the energy crisis, the food crisis, and so on. So there are some good reasons to be a bit pessimistic about the world, but I also to a degree, blame the intellectuals. In past periods, they did a lot of work on trying to offer route maps to the future. What, you know, How could you, you know, reduce poverty, improve health, fix the environment, uh, and so on? And those were part of the public discourse, these pictures of possible options for the future. And for different reasons, the intellectuals have largely stopped doing that. They've moved much more into commentary or critique, Within universities, as I said before, it's much easier to do analysis of the present and the past than to do detailed design of options for the future. Now there are exceptions to this within the green movement in particular. There's been you know, lots of work on what, you know, what a zero carbon economy would look like, or when we get away from, I mean, eating meat or um, uh, a car-based carbon-based economy, and so on. But in a way, that's the exception which proves the rule. And because of this sort of shrinking in of horizons, that means the space of nostalgia, make America great again, go back to a sort of romanticized idea of 1950s, I don't know, Italy or Britain. You know, that that has filled the space in, instead and offered without very plausible prescriptions and as you say, in many ways, quite unrealistic, because to me, one of the messages of the last 50 years is that actually when the world puts its its efforts into things like cutting child mortality or boosting renewable energy, it's actually rather good at achieving those things. So we have, I think, a deeply unrealistic fatalism embedded both in our intellectual culture and as a result in our wider political culture
0: because you also look at the whole question of information and the fact that we have so much information now and i kind of was thinking uh also about sigmund bauman has written a lot wrote a lot about nostalgia and where nostalgia comes from and part of his kind of notion is that our spheres of reference have have changed a lot so in the past we compare ourselves with our parents or our neighbors or people kind of near us and in, in those terms you know you could see a story of progress but one of the problems you have now is that people are comparing themselves to uh, sometimes fake versions of perfect lives in other places of the world. So there is a sort of the sense that even if your own life is getting better in relative terms, it's not keeping up with this, with, with what other people are doing. So he describes how you have a kind of floating sense of grievance, which is unsatisfiable, and that that feeds back into a sense of, of, of helplessness and fatalism and nostalgia. Do you think that that's part of it as well? I think that's a bit
1: of it, though. Um, having once commissioned and edited him, I've, I think he was he was so broad brush uh, and pessimistic about the world that he almost is, people like him became part of the problem. There is no doubt that in a sort of social media rich environment. We have all sorts of distorting mirrors through which we see the world. And as you say, there's striking evidence in many countries that even though people may think their own lives are going quite well, their own community is thriving quite well, they think they're the exceptions and their wider country, or the wider world is going to the dogs. And that's because that's what you pick up on in the news, which not naturally uh, emphasizes the dramatic, the dark, the bad over the slow, positive stories uh, of progress in things like Uh, Education or health, or for that matter, even democracy. And I think that is a problem, but I think it's not an inevitable problem because if there are counter forces, you can actually have a much more mature, much more sensible view of things. I work a lot in the Scandinavian uh, countries, which for different reasons have still relatively trusted governments, relatively competent governments, governments which are fairly comfortable looking 20, 40 years ahead to how to reform their economy, their job system, their welfare. And in a sense, suffer less, perhaps, from the, the the sort of weird polarizations and amplifications you get, particularly in the US, but also in many other uh, other parts of Europe. So I don't think it's inevitable. A social media saturated world has to uh, create these problems. There is one striking bit of research which I, I quote in the book, which came out last year, which studied every book published in English, German, and Spanish over the last 150 years. And it showed this extraordinary trend and it analyzed the sentiments in those books and showed relative stability for long, long periods until about the year 2000, when lots of the curves sort of start shooting upwards. And they call these cognitive distortions, catastrophizing. A sort of you know, hyper reaction to things, which definitely is, I think, linked to a, a, a social media environment, which creates these dynamic feedback loops, which often do distort our perception of the world around us. And that's why I think it's so important we do counter that kind of distortion and misinformation, but that's perhaps another story.
0: Let's talk a bit about the history of, of utopias. You, in the book, kind of look at, at the role of utopia in literature and political thinking, and you have this kind of notion of completion versus incomplete. Do you want to talk a bit about that? It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, so one of the things I try to look at in the book is you know where do ideas come from and what you know really imaginative ideas have the biggest impact. And the easiest place to look is written fictional utopias, which go back five or 600 years. They go back all the way to Plato, Sir Thomas More, City of the Sun. And they're extraordinary documents. But the more I compared them with other ways of trying to influence change through often quite simple ideas, like the idea of human rights or the idea of, you know, zero carbon living, or for that matter, the role of model towns and model communities, the more clear it became utopias on their own didn't actually have much influence in the world. They sort of freed people up to think in different ways, to see things differently, but their prescriptions almost never materialized. And there's a kind of cliche about the 20th century, that what went wrong in the 20th century was the imposition of utopias onto societies, mainly by Marxist-Leninist parties. But in fact, that's not what they did. They didn't impose utopias. They did impose often slightly crazy blueprints, but show me the utopia they tried to implement. It wasn't one. And so, as you say, my conclusion is if you want to really change the world, it's the combination of often quite simple generative ideas, like the idea of a circular economy, or perhaps the idea of extending human rights into different fields, or for that matter, the idea of new forms of global collective intelligence, something I work on a lot. It's the combination of those and then a whole dynamic exploring them in reality and learning out of experience, which is how the best. Change happens. It isn't someone writing a blueprint in a novel or anywhere else, and then someone else implementing it wholesale. So that's why the incomplete, more exploratory ideas are the most useful ones. And I also argue that perhaps a key idea for the 21st century over the 20th is experiment. If you think you've got a great way of solving a problem, don't impose it through a law on your whole country at once, as Stalin did, but also most political leaders in the 20th century try it out in one place, and learn by doing. And actually, that's in some ways much more of a Chinese tradition of change going back 2,000 years, perhaps, than in the Western mind, which likes to think in very sort of logical, deductive ways. It's very Paparian as well. It's very Paparian, definitely. And George Soros would probably approve And through experiment, you learn, and also through involving the likely beneficiaries of your policy in the design and execution, you also protect yourself against the sins of imagination, which can be deeply destructive and dangerous uh, if not controlled by experiment and active democracy.
0: So you you also talk about competing imaginations in the book. I was just wondering how you look at, at the kind of current geopolitical developments like the worsening relations between the US and China or different accounts of 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 what Russia's invasion of Ukraine means how these kind of things both are nourished by different imaginations about the kind of world that we're living in could live in but also to what extent the the clash of of these different imaginations has also had a detrimental effect on attempts to get people to work together towards collective solutions to sort of global problems we're having, whether it's COVID or um, climate change?
1: Yeah, so in in the book, I try to map out what will be the dominant competing imaginaries of the next 10 or 20 years. I definitely think a certain kind of technological authoritarian nationalism is the most important force globally for the uh, foreseeable future, as exemplified by Xi Jinping or Erdogan or Modi in a very different way in India. And that's a set of imaginaries in a way which compete with more traditional Western neoliberalism or new ideas coming from the Green Movement and social democracy. The most interesting sort of question which comes out of that is, is, as it were, the creative political imagination which could give shape to new forms of global governance which make sense to those different imaginaries. And sadly, I think one effect of the, the Ukraine war is making even harder to tie India and China into a more traditional western based global you know rules based order they've in some ways you know lost further trust that that will actually not be used against their interests so we need a lot of really creative imagination about what a next generation perhaps of task specific global governance institutions might be around things like data or things like uh, action on uh, on carbon emissions or global organized crime there's a whole host of tasks which need new forms of global governance and action but we need the creative imagination to design those in ways which make as much sense in Beijing and Delhi and Ankara as they maybe make sense in Berlin London and and Washington And one of the things I found depressing in recent years is how little really good creative work is being done on options for global governance design. And I sometimes point out that 10 years before the UN was founded, it was completely unrealistic to propose the United Nations. It was the daftest thing you could possibly do. The conditions looked so unpropitious. But in a way, it's precisely in those dark times that the hard work needs to be done on options so that when there is a shift of alignment, a shift of conditions, we have some well worked through proposals to get the major powers hopefully to align around.
0: And how because obviously one of the reasons why a lot of the imaginaries that have tried to solve these problems have run adrift is that they tend not to take politics, identity, power very much into account. So environmentalism for me is a sort of classic thing where there was this vision of three kind of big shifts that would take place in the world from, from thinking in national terms to global terms, from thinking about power to kind of having rules and laws and binding agreements, thinking about kind of politics and emotion, shifting to science and reason. And, you know, if you look at the the kind of early moves towards solutions, they were very much part of that shift. The Kyoto Protocol, in many ways, was the kind of embodiment of, of something which was trying to be global rather than national, which had binding targets and was, was determined by scientists working in the, in your kind of Paparian style. And many people thought that was the beginning of a kind of shift towards a different way of thinking about the world. In fact, that was the high point. And since then, we've moved in the opposite direction on all three dimensions. And people are thinking much more zero-sum terms, they're gaming the idea of the rules-based order sounds hilarious to, to you know 90% of the global population because they don't see these rules having any universal legitimacy. They're just rules that Western countries have developed, which they use to further their own interests and change when they're no longer useful, and then attack other people for breaking the rules. That sort of question about how, how you can shift, because so, the, the big hope was that something like climate change would be so dramatic that the idea of relative ups and downs would kind of fade into insignificance compared to the notion of our own survival being brought into question. How do you reconcile the sort of hope for collective intelligence, these sort of collective solutions, with the fact that so much power, so many interests are are, are located in still national governments who don't who control our information, how we shape things and are looking at things in a much more zero sum way and are kind of motivated by, by, by grievances, by a desire to take back control from a kind of dangerous world. And, 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 it's a lot easier to work out how to have imagination, you know, within a, 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 a within a, a, a smaller community than it is a global level. That seems to be the most difficult
1: thing. It is, but obviously this this functions at multiple levels. What yeah. you've described, I mean, to me, the IPCC is one of the most extraordinary global institutional designs. A global most observatory and prediction of what's happening at a global level on climate and albeit the limitations of Paris treaties and so on. That is a, as a first in, in human history. My guess is it will take much more severe crises to really change the dynamics you describe. Bring on war, depression, revolution. There's, there, there's a, a nice novel published last year by Kim Stanley Robinson, The Ministry of the Future, which predicts very high temperatures in India as one of the prompts for change. And this year, we've seen temperatures of 63 degrees in India. Uh, China feels very vulnerable to some of the effects of climate change. So at some point, there may be a perception, we can't solve these problems on our own. We actually do need some new global cooperation. And then at a much more local level, things like the shift to a low-waste, low-carbon economy are embedded in part in people's consciousness and their daily habits. I I like to point out to people in Europe, for example, you know, three quarters of all our paper is now recycled, which seemed inconceivable a generation ago. Countries like Britain and Germany, you know, 40, nearly half of all electricity now comes from renewables, far, far more than a generation ago. And often we underestimate how much has been achieved in change. But that's partly because the ecological goal has been aligned with people's interests with jobs, with uh, identities, with all those other things, rather than just being imposed as a set of sacrifices which people have to make. And again, that's the creative political task, is how do you make something which is maybe necessary align with the feelings, the emotions, the realities of, of, of daily life? And I think a previous generation perhaps of ecologists weren't very good at that, but now we've got lots of more more useful to sort of hybrids, for example, offering to you know working class manual workers, you know the the opportunities for them in an economy where there's much more maintenance of, of homes, of machines, much more reuse of things. That's you know used to be very much a metropolitan, urban, educated idea, but it's actually one which in some ways resonates much more with a a more traditional manual working class culture.
0: So maybe we can spend the last few minutes talking about you know what we can do about this and you got some really very concrete ideas for thinking about how we can get people to to make utopias again and to have some faith in the future can you talk about some of the methods which which one could use well a lot of the book is trying to actually
1: suggest some methods for from creativity how do you actually generate options think laterally creatively and These are remarkably little used in disciplines like economics, which has shown almost no curiosity to learn from business or design or the arts about how to think creatively. So a minimum, uh, I hope more and more uh, people will use some of those to expand their sense of options. It could be for global governance or a local library or a park or a, uh, a welfare system. Well, a lot of them, in a way, are what's happened in the past with imagination, where often we extend an idea in new ways or we graft an element from a completely different field into one which we know, or we invert roles and turn them uh, upside down. In the book, I give lots of examples of these, but I found very quickly with almost any group of, could be ordinary citizens or civil servants or activists, using these methods, you quickly expand your sense of possibilities. Many of them are not any good, but they they help you realise that there are many more ways to fix things than you initially imagine. And the other thing I then do in the book is look at what could be the roles of political parties or mayors or ministers in, in commissioning these kind of exercises? What's, what could universities be doing to use their brain power to help our societies think 20, 40 years ahead? What should philanthropy be doing, uh, you know, which has the free money, perhaps the, the the space to do this sort of work, but very rarely uses that freedom? And the, the overall aim should be that our society as an ordinary person in Berlin or London or Milan or you know, has, a, has a sense of what could be possible 20, 40, 50 years into the future and how things could be better, not in you know, fantasy ways, not in a sort of Panglossian way, but in ways which have some you know, real substance, real potential of happening. And I think that's plausible, but it needs those institutions with the power and the money to actually get behind the job of expanding imagination.
0: So you talk in the book about how imagination needs a material base and why we should invest in something that you call exploratory social science. Can you kind of elaborate a bit more on that? Well
1: imagination in the arts we we assume requires resources it requires art schools and galleries and funds and scholarships and so on that's why we have you know burgeoning you know booming arts fields in in film and painting and music and so on often very well funded and i think we need a bit the same in social imagination So a good example of what I'm talking about in the book was actually launched um, about two weeks ago in in Wales, uh, so it's not in the book, uh, which was a a social science park linked to the University of Cardiff, a, a building with 800 people in it where there'll be government civil servants, people from the city, NGOs, working then in joint teams on things like the future of care for the elderly or tackling racism or achieving a zero waste economy. That's the kind of exploratory social science I think we need much more of, which links the depth of knowledge of the academics with the practitioners around sort of serious projects of designing options for the city or, or, or the country of Wales in that case. And I'd love to see every city have something a bit like that.
0: So you talked a bit about political parties, which, you know, are being accused of of having shorter and shorter time horizons, so short that the idea of a utopia seems uh, practically impossible. I remember when we were at Demos, one of your most creative ideas was writing a manifesto for the election after next in order to stretch people's horizons. Everyone was focused on the the general election that was about to happen and you were trying to, to force people to to stretch their horizons at least by an extra four or five years. If you were kind of advising political parties now about how to stretch their own horizons, but also to to take the public with you and, and to create a political base for this much more forward-looking politics that you're talking about, what kinds of Ideas should be at the heart of that.
1: Well, a very good example I, I was a bit involved in some time ago was in Australia, where the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, in 2008 launched a process on Australia 2020. So it was looking 13 years into the future and tried to mobilize really the whole public in a discussion about what are the big challenges, what do we need to do differently on things like access to water or pensions or climate change. And it was very successfully done. It led to discussions in pretty much every secondary school, every town, all the media carried big, you know, multi-page pullouts on the big issues of the future. A thousand people gathered in parliament from all over the country to discuss with him and the politicians. And it showed that you can orchestrate a society-wide discussion, which is two elections ahead in that case. It wasn't just the election after next. Now, in that particular case, the financial crisis then
0: hit... I was to say, it, it
1: preceded a long period of opposition for his party and other, other parties were... Well, no, actually, the financial crisis put it on hold, which Australia handled very well. And his party was in power for well, another, I guess it was five years or so after that. So it's, it's an incomplete example, but it shows how a political leader can create that kind of space and benefit from it and actually rather marginalize the opposition by being the place which is talking about uh, the medium and long term priorities
0: great and just in terms of the cuz that's more about the process but in terms of the sort of last question before we wrap up then what do you think the the most sort of generative ideas are which are around at the moment which will help us reimagine what what our kind of world could look like. Well, there are
1: lots of them, and I I try to list quite a few of them in the book. I mean, ones I'm particularly keen on are the new possibilities of collective intelligence, how we turn the brain power of a whole society into something which shapes our democracy, shapes how we run local services, how we solve problems. I do think the whole idea of a zero waste economy is very generative. You know, at the moment, only 2% of our clothing is recycled. We've got a huge way to go to liberate ourselves from the incredibly resource intensive of, you know, industrial capitalism and so on and so forth. And I think new models of aging and care for the elderly, uh, which emphasize mutual support. These are, again, generative ideas which can fuel lots of useful, practical innovation and actually also give us a picture of what a better society might look like.
0: Fantastic. Well, there's lots more in Jeff's book, Another World is Possible. I encourage you to read it. It's packed with unbelievably interesting ideas, ways of framing things, and lots of nuggets of information and facts that many people will not have been aware of. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, though, and that's our bookshelf segment. Obviously, Jeff's book, Another World is Possible, should be on your bookshelf. But Jeff, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? What would you recommend to our listeners?
1: Well, I was told I could recommend a film. So it was okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I
1: last night watched the third film I've seen in the last couple of months by Loznytsa, the Ukrainian documentary filmmaker. And the one I saw last night was... The Trial, about a trial in Stalin's Russia documentary footage. His one last year, Babin Yar, is an absolutely extraordinary film about the Nazi invasion of the Ukraine and then the massacre uh, in Kiev. And his film, which isn't out yet, but I've seen of the history of aerial warfare and destruction, I found absolutely mind-blowing. So I strongly recommend any of his films if you get a chance to see them, to see the world in a, in a different way
0: great fantastic so we'll put links up to all these publications and films on our website at ecfr.eu if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast please do head to whatever platform you've used to download it from and subscribe to future episodes and while you're there you might as well give us a positive review and a five-star rating because that will help bring other people to the podcast but for now from jeff mulgan and myself Mark leonard it's goodbye the researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpental and our editor of this episode is Adam Teufel.